Are we ready to go? Yes? No? We're just going to wing it? Don't we always? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, we're in yeah. Don't we always? Okay, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra. I'm in Toronto, Ontario. And once again, this week, I am joined by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we're also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose. Hey, everybody. So, um, okay, well, let's commence with the uh, table flipping, and I'm going to hand it over to Aaron. Why don't you jump in there? Do we have table flipping sounds? Uh, I'll, I'll put one in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that would sound like. Okay, let's, let's kick it off, because what we're talking about here is the uh, rejections this week from by Apple of, oh, gosh, what actually kicked it off? Because was it uh, Panic's um, rejection of, of their iCloud Drive Pushing capability. Well, the first one I heard about was actually Draft iOS, and then and of course Launcher from like last month, right? Yeah, Launcher was last was in September actually, I believe. Okay. Um, to to read that column, and then we heard about Panic uh, having to pull their widget functionality uh, from uh, from iOS because they were not allowed to move files into iCloud Drive. Oh, okay. And right, right. We also heard about about drafts. Uh, because you weren't, be able, weren't able to, and I believe technically it was being able to compose notes in the Today View that go into the main app. That's correct, or or, or something that launches the app from the, from the Today yeah. View, yeah. yeah. So the idea being that you can't start something in the Today View and go into the app. That's right, right. my understanding, anyway. And, and panics was because of the fact that they can't write to, I, to Cloud Drive, and therefore, the, and because of that, that functionality is, ties them into connected to everything, right? All the other online services. Right. So everything except for like FTP servers, which yeah. is sort of their bread and butter. Yeah. So that's kind of okay. It doesn't cripple the app, but it uh, diminishes a lot of its functionality. Mm-hmm. The idea with Panic's uh, app is that they were using the standard drive share sheet. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that would allow you to send files to a variety of services, such as Dropbox or or Windows Drive, or whatever the heck they're calling it now, uh, and iCloud Drive, uh, is all combined together. So you can't actually just go into that sheet and pick out one of them, right. like iCloud Drive in this case. You actually have to just get rid of the whole sheet. And so Panic had to pull uh, a huge chunk of their functionality from their Today widget. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I guess the, the, the consensus here is that Apple has, has promised us functionality back at WWDC, where we have these today extensions that pretty much give you carte blanche in terms of the capabilities that you can offer inside of the today widget mm-hmm. area. It's basically a view controller, right? So you can write pretty much anything that you'd like. You know, there are obviously, um, you know, some limitations, but they, they were saying to the developers essentially, you know, surprise and amaze us. Build, build something great with this functionality. And I think a lot of developers have jumped in there and done just that, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we talked about actual pCalc um, not too long ago, right, that was other one, yeah. which which was like the first one I think we we really heard about getting rejected out of hand, and but then being restored. Yeah. You know, I think our our conversation about that kind of came around to the fact that you know what this sounds like Apple's just got two hands, right hands not talking to the left. They're going to figure this out and they're going to retract that rejection, and that's exactly what ended up happening. And so I think realistically, there's reason to hope that panic and uh, drafts will have their functionality restored. However, <laughs> also this week we saw published a blog uh, column by Greg Gardner, who is the developer of Launcher. And he, he was in the App Store on day one of iOS 8's launch back in September. And his app is uh, an app that launches other applications. So he was kind of on... I wouldn't say thin ice, but he was definitely pushing new ground in terms of functionality. Uh, but Apple has been pretty specific, I think, uh, in terms of messaging that uh, you shouldn't be able to create uh, like a replacement launching environment. They don't want to replace Springboard, basically. And so the, what they did is they, they 
put him in the App Store. They approved him. They featured him in the App Store editorially. And then they rejected him from the App Store for having um, forbidden functionality in his Today widget. And this week, he published a piece where he described exactly what happened to him. And it's not pretty at all. And a little depressing. It's, it's so depressing that I ended up getting angry and writing about it myself in my own blog, which you can check out, aaron.bay.ca. And the point is, um, it makes Apple look like someone who is a totally indifferent giant to the fleas <laughs> that are crawling around on the body of the dog of Apple, if you will, mm-hmm. and producing this this software product that is simply grist for the mill for Apple. And no individual developer is of really any consequence to them. And um, I think everybody would agree to that. They wouldn't agree to the tone of the characterization, but uh, I think we, we all recognize that we're very small people in terms of Apple's great stature. And I think this column by Greg Gardner really brings it home. He, he makes two points. And I'm, I'm sorry about blathering here, but I'm just going to go on with sure. this. <laughs> you can kind of cut me up in the editing if you like. <laughs> the, the, the thing that really got people's back up was when he spoke to App, App Review and they basically laid it out for him that uh, regarding his question, you know, if if I'm not allowed to have a Today widget that can launch apps, there are several other apps in the store that actually do this. Why haven't you rejected them? Right, yeah. And their response is, we would actually rather communicate that policy by publicly rejecting the, the front-leading app that does what we disagree with. So that when yeah, the to media make picks it up, them, we're going to make an example out yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else is going to get the message. At that point, people will stop doing what we don't want them to do. Right. So instead of having actual published guidelines to say what you can and cannot do, which Apple does have, they have the guidelines, they won't do that. Rather, what they'll do is they'll waste a developer's time by letting him leave his day job, begin a, no- a new business, spend six months writing an app, posting it to the store, having a modicum of success, and then getting rejected and having his business flush down the toilet mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to send the message that they don't want that kind of app in the store. So that's, that's the first thing, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's got developers really upset right now, and reasonably so. <laughs> so here's the second thing, and the second thing is just a paragraph he wrote that I think summarizes the position of Apple, and I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm sorry. Here it is. You're going to get it (laughs) verbatim. Okay. All right. Go for it. Here's what he writes. To Apple, developer time is expendable because they don't bear the brunt of the wasted months of development. As far as they're concerned, developers are an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of MacBooks. And every once in a while, one of us stumbles upon an app, not only passes all their written and unwritten guidelines, but is actually successful too. The opportunity cost of developers either not working on an app for fear of rejection or wasted developer time when an app is ultimately rejected appears to be of no concern to them. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a flagrant example of disregard from a company who is so far above us taking advantage of a working class of developers who are only trying to make uh, a business for themselves. And I find it maddening, just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it is a pretty common thing in, in my experience of dealing with Apple for like 20 some odd years now, that, that that's what happens. I mean, Apple kind of grows in different ways and then, and then they, they have to call the herd as it were. And, they, and they, they've done that through action and through inaction in the past before in, in different parts of their market. But um, what got me, I mean, what, what disheartens me is sort of like the, exactly the whole feeling of, of like, what's the point, you know, like, like how far can we really go down? And, and it does cripple uh, ind- independent developers, you know, uh, when, when stuff like this happens and you have to really be careful. And it's, uh, I read the developer guidelines today before the show. And um, at the very end of it, they're, they're very sort of, 
Um, you know, we, we'd love, you know, we, we're publishing what you can't do. We're not publishing what you can do. And they, this is a living document. We, you know, of course, they, without saying it, they reserve the right to change the rules at any point in time because it's their game. Um, but it, it's kind of, it, it kind of makes you wonder what, what it is you can possibly do um, when you're building an app. And you're, I know when I first started in, in iOS development, we were worried about, you know, some of the things we were trying to do and if Apple would let it go through. And, and our apps have been rejected for a number of reasons over the years. I mean, uh, we've, we've talked about this on the show before. Mark and I, you know, were working for a client who wanted to use um, a subscription model to basically, you know, monthly subscriptions to... Uh, to in their app and and Apple changed the the uh, the rule on that one midstream and we you know before we even shipped our app we found out about the fact that we wouldn't be able to ship it you know so well Apple's always been this way yeah. you know we understand Apple's priorities right it's it's Apple it's the customer and then it's the developers yeah in that order right and so we know our place in the totem pole yeah. Um, I, I think we're actually further down the totem pole than you think, but go ahead. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the it's just the blatant disregard of it's it's the lack of respect. Mm. Uh, developers as a group provide the meat and potatoes of what makes iOS iOS. Mm-hmm. But because there are so many of us, we can be looked at as a fungible resource that. They don't need to pay any real attention to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know what? It's just, it's disheartening. That's all. And yeah. demoralizing. Yeah. And it hits close to home in my case because like, you know, Greg here, Gardner, uh, I have the same dream. You know, this is the thing I've been chasing for, you know, officially I've been chasing it for seven years now. Right. The idea of being an independent developer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, like Greg, I've got to let that go. Right, right. What did you? What do you? Right, let me ask you this about because I know you you were a Cocoa developer before iOS came along, and you still do Cocoa apps, right? You mean Mac OS Mac, 10 yeah, apps? Mac, yeah, Mac OS ten. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Um, and and my experience has been in the past. I mean, you're sort of wanting to learn how to do all this kind of stuff, you know, for the last fifteen twenty years. And um, so before iOS came along, you were building apps for iOS or for uh, Mac OS ten and or... back then I was really just in the very earliest stages of learning. Right, right. You know, so I wasn't I wasn't effectively building anything. I was living full time as a web developer th- those times. Right. So, but but given that you know the Mac market wasn't as strong as it is today, I mean Apple wasn't the number one company you know seven years ago that they are the position they're in today. Um, a lot of that's on the, on the on the backs of the iPhone itself, but um, um, I mean, and, and back then I think it was difficult to get people to write apps for Mac. I mean, at one point in time, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, I think Apple was paying for people to fly to WWDC. It was that bad, you know. Um, Mark and Jaime, what are your experiences with with Apple of your the old Apple? Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> They, there, there definitely can be a uncertainty for that. That's that's for sure. And you know, I, on the one hand, I kind of understand the struggle that they're dealing with in terms of making sure that you know the user experience is top notch mm-hmm. and everything that's been added for uh, well, pretty much for iOS eight, were some big fundamental changes that uh, I don't think were really easy to to handle. I mean, certainly not for developers. And, and I think even for Apple itself, I, I don't understand why they're falling on the idea of, well, you know, we, we should avoid these things because, you know, I'm speculating here, right. But it's something like, you know, we, we don't want this, um, today view or these other things to be uh, a certain way because it will be, it's a confusing for users, but all of these things that we're talking about here, right. The launcher app, um, the drafts app and, um, panics transmit. Mm -hmm. These are all things that you really kind of have to be an advanced user to use them anyways, right? You're not, you're not going to have, you know, just purchased your first ever iPhone six plus, and then are completely, you know, unhinged by what you've encountered here. I mean, you, you have to install, find these apps, install them for the today widgets. You have to go ahead and, you know, do some additional setup by accepting the widget onto your screen and everything. Like, I think it's, mm. it's pretty clear here that there's a, 
a, a category of users that need to be treated a little bit differently in terms of what Apple's main focus is. I mean, the it just works, very simple sort of thing. I think they should continue to go with that. That's that's one of their, their biggest strengths. And I was hoping from WWDC that they'd said, okay, you know what? There's there's another category of users that we're going to start accommodating to because our, our main competitors accommodate them. Let's go ahead and attack that weakness of ours, right? And, 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 and while I can see in the case of the launcher app that that one, I think if I was a reviewer, I probably would have rejected that one too. That one seems pretty clear cut. There's like a specific guideline that, that says, I mean, you can point right to it and say this one right here, 10 point X point two, what, you yeah. know, whatever it happens to be like, this one says, do not do this Yeah. with, with the case of drafts. It's weird because you have all this evidence from, you know, the WWDC video showing like, Hey, look, look at this eBay example where you can, you know, you have these buttons on here and, and you're, you know, doing some sort of transaction, mm-hmm. um, as well as the SDK itself that says, Hey, you've got a full on UI view here. This isn't just a static image that you're, you're displaying and then launches your app. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the case of, of panic, uh, they kind of point out the fact that Apple said, you know, Hey, uh, this is going to violate 2.23 apps must follow the iOS data storage guidelines. So they will be rejected. And then you follow that link and say, wait a minute, this doesn't say anything at all about how iCloud drive works. And, and even uh, you know, the notion of only apps can send data to iCloud Drive that's like is basically user driven and not from other arbitrary apps. I understand why they would have said that and that would have made sense until iCloud Drive came to the Mac. And it's, as far as I understand, supposed to operate like Dropbox or Microsoft's OneDrive. It's, oh, really? it's, exactly it's right. supposed to be closer to that. It's not, it's not like what iCloud was before. Hmm. Yeah, the point is, is that you can put files into an arbitrary location in your iCloud drive. Yeah, and from the Mac? On you have... the Mac. On the Mac. Oh, okay, <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. But on iOS, the an app can only write to its own piece of iCloud drive. My take on this is, is it's really nothing new. I mean, ever since the beginning of iOS, there have been issues of people being rejected uh, and, and uh, you know, gray area interpretations of, of the rules and in some case even less than gray. Uh, but, but my feeling is that, you know, Apple has set up the system and it works for a lot of people and it works very well for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you choose to kind of skirt the edges of what is okay, uh, you know, th- there's risk involved in that. And you may be very successful because you've pushed the boundary and gotten the first app to do a certain type of thing out there mm-hmm. and, and, and hit the jackpot because of that. Or you may get slapped back by Apple because of this. And and that's the risk you take. I mean, you, you can certainly write an app that stays away from all of these issues completely and potentially be very successful at that. So, yeah, again, it's it's a risk-reward kind of thing. If you want to take the risk of, of doing something that's kind of on the edge, go for it. Uh, but, you know, if you're quitting your day job and depending <laughs> on that for an income, then it's probably not a good idea to do that. I also think that, you know, now that the, the big boys have joined the party, the Disney's and the EA's and all that kind of stuff, that, that we you, we don't have the deep enough pockets to sort of compete at that top level. I mean, I don't dream of building an app and having it, you know, sell sell off the shelves. I dream of building an app that makes a modest, you know, income for me as a developer. That's what I dream of, right? Um, and, and, I mean, it'd be really nice if, it, if, it, if I could get paid the kind of money I want to get paid, but I don't think that's going to happen with any single app. Um, and it's going to take a lot of effort to, to market it and to get behind it and, you know, treat it like a proper business person would in order to make that, that successful. And that, you know, that means, you know, you put as much effort into developing and designing as you do into marketing and promoting and social networking and all that kind of stuff. It takes a lot of effort to, to, to make a successful app. I think, you know, in, in, I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. I think the days of just a guy writing an app. In, you know, in his living room and, and selling it and making a million bucks are, are long gone. Yeah, we all yeah. we all understand this. We all know this. Yeah. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised when people who are trying to follow that, follow that model aren't having a lot of success. Right. This is kind of what I'd like to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I talk about going indie or when Greg talks about going indie, mm-hmm. this is this is kind of what he's getting at. Where, where are the opportunities to to make a kind of living like that where, you know, I'm not... I'm not buying a Jaguar every year. Right. I'm I'm 
I'm living in a, a normal house with a family that I'm helping to support. I'm paying a mortgage, but I don't have to worry about, you know, <laughs> I don't know, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm making a good living building one or more apps for the App Store. A, a marketplace, I'll remind you, of hundreds of millions of people mm-hmm. who and, and growing – and yet there's no reliable way to make any money off of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's the part that kind of scares the crap out of me. Right, but, but it's a marketplace. I mean, if you open a, an ice cream shop down the street, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to make a living off of that, right? Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a guarantee that just because you put in something into the store that you're going to have success at it. That's true. And you shouldn't expect that. Uh, no, I agree. I, I just think... I, what I'm observing is that very few people, like far fewer than I think should, are being successful. Oh, it's, 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 it's minimal. I mean, um, like I said, I keep talking about Charles Perry, uh, his talk in, in um, NS North in, in April. Um, he talked about the fact that, that it's less than 1% of the developers out there are actually making a living at this. Like, yes, like and... A, um, I'm going to also point you to uh, the link I just posted, sure. which is the uh, the revenues that have been generated by a very top-ranked app, uh, which is called a room dark a dark room. Mm-hmm, sorry, mm-hmm. and he outlined uh, the kinds of money that he made uh, in the history of his app, mm-hmm. which was ranked number one for a while in the United States. Uh, in the UK, Australia, Germany, Canada, Singapore. And while he ended up making a, a decent amount of money, uh, for a top-ranked top app, I, I would expect him to be wealthy. Well, I, I hate to be harsh, but do something else. If it's not <laughs> pay, giving you the payout that you lo- that you want, do something else. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's, that's the, again, where the, the exodus has been happening, is that there have been a number of people who have made that decision. I mean... Um, I've forgotten his name now. The um, Justin, the the guy who was running Glassboard, decided yeah. to close the business down after he gave it a year's try, and, and and he was quite honest about about some of the mistakes he made over the year uh, that he had the app, and he had to hope that it would it would make him a living, and and yet at the end of the day, it it didn't. It ended up costing him money to have, and he decided to pull the plug at the last minute. You know, so not the last minute, but he decided to pull the plug as as a wise move, rather than rather than bleeding money out of his bank account. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that um, you know in terms of the the business risk, it's I mean, we talked maybe a couple of weeks ago about Twitter and and sort of relying on on other people's APIs and mm-hmm. relying on other people's platforms is kind of the same thing, especially because uh, Apple is very 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 deeply you know engaged with what it's doing with its platform um, more so than say like Google or or Microsoft are doing on their respective platforms. And I think that in terms of opportunity, it is true that the big players are coming in and they're they're doing things uh, that that make it challenging for you know like a a, a true quote unquote indie dev to to make a living. Mm-hmm, but I think mm-hmm. it depends on how you do things, right? So uh, let, let's take the example of like Justin Williams or uh, this Darkroom iOS game. So those were two apps that would have had you know very challenging. You know, competitive environments, uh, you know, in terms of Glassboard, it had to deal with an existing user base that was already accustomed to getting a ton of things for free. Um, in, in terms of games, it's kind of difficult to, since it's a hit-based business, it's really, di- and it takes a lot of investment to get to something useful in the first place. Mm-hmm. Games is kind of a, a very difficult, risky business. I do think that there's an opportunity here, though, for people who do something like, you know, Moneyball type of stuff. So very quickly here for people who aren't familiar with that term, Moneyball is, uh, it's a, it's a book from uh, Billy Bean, general manager right, yeah. of the Oakland athletics baseball team. Right. And for those of you who don't have the time to read the book, there's also a movie starring Brad Pitt. <laughs> a very good movie but, right. on Netflix. Yeah. And, 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 but the basic idea is like, there are big players in, in, in the game. And, right. and in the case of baseball, it was the New York Yankees, and the Boston Red Sox who have tons of money and can buy, you know, the most expensive possible players, the quote-unquote best players. Mm-hmm. And Billy Bean said, okay, look, I've only got this this much budget. What can I do to be successful? What can I do to compete? 
and he found market inefficiencies where he said, you know, these three guys can be equivalent to this one player that the Yankees have. So I'm going to get those three guys. I'm going to get them cheap. And I think the same kind of thing exists in the app store world where uh, look at something like Yahoo, right? Why did Yahoo go on that buying spree? Because Yahoo for all of its immense size and strength just couldn't compete. It was too slow, right? So being nimble and moving around the big competitors is probably the best bet to go. It, it might mean that you'll have to be fairly aggressive with things. You'll have to use a lot of analytics to figure out, you know what? It's been X number of weeks. This app isn't growing. Cut support. Start something new. Sure. Try to find a new inefficiency. Sure. Well, I, I like Mark's analogy of the ice cream store because, I mean, if you consider this, right, consider a small independent developer as opening a, a, an ice cream store. You have to decide what type of living you want to make. And if you, it, 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 there's totally no reason why you couldn't open a small ice cream store, sell, you know, sell some cool flavors and you know, have people drop by in the summer and hang around your store and get a little bit of buzz and, and make, make a decent living. Right. I mean, and I'm not talking scads of money. You're still driving around, you know, your, your, uh, your, your Honda Civic, and you're not really, you know, not, you're, not, you're not even thinking about Jaguars. And compare that to the big box stores, right? The, you know, the, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Home Depots, the JCPenney's, right? We're not in that market. So we can't, we can't really compare ourselves to the Disney's and the Electronic Arts and all the guys with the huge deep pockets, you know, even Angry Bird uh, publisher, Rovio, and uh, who's the guys who do... Um, clash of clans you know they, they've got the television commercials going now they've got billboards they've got magazine ads we, we're not even in that same market right or sorry we're in the same market but we're not in that same game right they're they're dealing with millions and millions and millions of customers every day that we don't have that capacity to, to deal with we're talking about you know we got 10 flavors of ice cream you know we got a couple of types of cones and we're we're building a small little app to make a, a, a decent little living. I think that's what what an indie developer really sort of needs to focus on is that you're not going to have the hit out of the park. And if you did, you couldn't afford to support it. Another thing we're going to talk about today is that uh, Apple just threw up a, a new page on their website talking about the new relationship with IBM on the App Store. I, I think I found it first. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, you know, I was digging through your... Uh, I'll tell you why I was looking at your Twitter earlier today, but go ahead. Jump in. Was it last summer that Apple announced their partnership with IBM to create enterprise apps? I think it, yeah, I think it was at WWDC. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So the idea being that um, because we're seeing a lot of uptake of iOS in businesses and large enterprise, Apple, uh, which is famously not terribly uh, prolific <laughs> in the enterprise, mm -hmm. they they just don't focus on that. And so I have a couple of excerpts in the basement if anybody's interested. Of enterprise level servers in the basement made by apple oh yes. lovely yeah. yes mm -hmm. let's let's put a few out Continue. there so um <laughs> apple's partnership with ibm was such a terrific deal i think it make, makes a lot of sense because they've got the sales force they've got all the guys in you know starch suits that go out and glad hand big corporate uh buyers and take them out for steak dinners and play golf and do all that sort of thing things that apple is never going to do mm -hmm. and and sell them on the idea of using iPhones and iPads inside their businesses. The only missing component, really, being um, you know very targeted, vertical, compelling apps that can run on those devices. So IBM and Apple team up to create the apps, and then IBM goes in and sells the apps and the and the hardware to these large, large businesses in you know the tens of thousands. So. Big deal, great deal. And so today, uh, what happened is both Apple and IBM announced the first sort of raft, if you will, of apps, uh, the result of this partnership in like all of these different vertical markets. Mm -hmm. And so you got banking, you got travel, retail, insurance, telco, government. And in each of these areas, they've got a whole whack of apps. And uh, <laughs> it kind of boggles the mind. Apple published this page, and I think we'll link it to in, in the show notes, yep. where they, they show you in each of these verticals, hey, look, here's a bunch of apps, and here's screenshots of them. And you know what? They look great. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not, they're not you know, mind-blowing, but they're really solid, nice-looking apps, which are, is shocking for the enterprise. Um, but uh, here it is, and they look good. So I think that you know, we're talking about 
uh, big gorillas coming into the market and taking over. This is certainly an example of that. Yeah, the biggest uh, I, gorilla, for sure. Indeed. And, uh, you know, uh, another blow against independent developers, if you, if you don't mind. But I think we were, we were just talking about this before the show, mm-hmm. uh, Tim. So we were saying, uh, you know, are these customers that we would even have access to anyway? And so... You know that's one way to sort well, of. Well, the reality is no. I don't think I don't think we would. No, no, I don't think we would. So cool, no problem. Uh, but they look great. It's great to see Apple um, getting involved here and, and kind of growing their business in ways that otherwise I don't think they would have been able to. So some of these would have been really hard. So I'm looking at the travel and transportation and what they're showing for the flight crew and the pilot. Like that requires uh, serious work with the FAA to get that actually mm-hmm. certified to to use. So having worked in, in that area in, in the past, that's uh, th- that's non-trivial. I can't see an indie developer seriously taking that on. And I thought it was funny that they actually show a screenshot of them using it on the plane in mid-flight. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. Actually, a friend of the show, Farley, uh, posted earlier today that um, uh, one of the airlines, I think it's maybe United, is giving each of the uh, stewardesses and stewardesses um, a six plus, yeah, six plus, yeah, twenty-three thousand yeah. of them. Yeah, so yeah. Still- yeah, I, I saw the, the headline for that. And there's other airlines that had been using um, Galaxy Notes, mm. uh, another large. So, so they have the, the purser, usually the, the one that takes your money, sure. right, for yep. all those wonderful $5 Lay's potato chips that you buy. Right. Uh-huh. Interesting. I built a, an enterprise app for uh, an insurance company for John Hancock Insurance at one point, you know, four or five years ago. That now I'm looking at the insurance thing. That would be the kind of thing that they would go. They would go to that to to this kind of thing for uh, looking at the insurance products, right? So, what do you have to say there, Mark? Uh, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean the enterprise is a, is a is a good space. Sure. And you know, there's there's always been uh, certain companies that cater to enterprise and certain companies that cater to consumer. Mm-hmm. And um, the you know the companies that are good at doing enterprise stuff will will do well. And again, like and I, and I think it's also the economies of scale argument I gave earlier that that you know mm-hmm. they've got the capacity to handle these type of clients, these size of clients. Yeah, I've done some enterprise yeah. apps, but generally they're smaller enterprises. Like you know maybe they're they're national across Canada, but but uh, the products are are used by a handful of people, not necessarily not necessarily you know thousands of people at a time, right? So, yep. The thing that sort of makes me uh, makes me goggle a bit at this is is the number of apps we're talking about here. The partnership talks about making over a hundred apps like this. Mm-hmm. And these, these don't look like little widgets, you know, no. this isn't the weather app. We're, we're looking at apps that have real depth to them and, you know, good functionality. How many people are involved in building these apps? You know, separate teams is, I wonder, are they yeah. sharing code? Um, yeah. Are they distributed? Yeah, so having worked with IBM as a partner at, at one time in the past, I expect they have a, a very large number of people working on well, these I know that the, Probably 10 times as many as you might expect. Yeah, here, here in north of Toronto, we have an area called Markham, um, or a small part of the city called Markham, which we call Silicon North. Um, and that's Ottawa. Ottawa is Silicon Valley North. Is it? Well, it used to. Well, that's what they used to say well, used to, back when no, no, really. Nortel was around. Well, yeah, okay. Well, Nortel, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I had a friend who worked at IBM there, and and they have they had rooms and rooms and rooms of, of developers. And this is going back, you know, uh, ten years ago now. But but they have the capacity to do this kind of stuff. And of course, they understand the infrastructure. They've got the servers. They've got the networks. Um, and it's, it's actually, you know what, this is good for IBM as well as good for Apple. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, what, what was IBM going to be doing really? You know, they're, they're not going to get into the market to, to build another device, uh, cause that would be one way to go about it, you know? And, uh, and they've got, and like windows, IBM has got the ear of the enterprise client, right? So, of course. Yeah. But let yeah. me ask you, like, let me put this out there. Mm-hmm. Where where did these iOS developers come from? They were all hired. Didn't you, didn't you get the job application, Aaron? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> well, one, yeah, one like, interesting thing I would I would point out is is uh, I'm looking at the website right now, and it's not clear that any of these actually exist. You no. know, yeah. Well, that's to, as opposed to being you know uh, prototypes or mockups to be shown to potential customers who might want to engage in a consulting type of relationship yeah. with IBM, yeah. where oh, they'll come in and build this thing. Uh, if you're willing to pay for it. And that's kind of sort of mm-hmm. how that, that market works is, you know, mm-hmm. you, you talk about what you can potentially build for them and then you find out what they really need and then you build that product, you know, so. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
God, could you be? Yeah. Oh my God, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. This is all just PSDs, right? It's a nice website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually fairly likely that that's the case. Yeah. yeah. But that yeah, that actually yeah. makes more yeah. sense than yeah. the idea of IBM having gone out and hired ten thousand iOS developers. Well, I was right? talking to one one of the guys. Uh, I was talking to somebody. I think we'd have heard about that. Well, I did. I did speak to one of the developers. I'm not sweet, but I was chatting with a developer earlier today who was telling me that he did he did actually speak to IBM about a job doing iOS. You know, so so it is. Well, I'm sure they have some. I mean, they have to have some prototypes that they can show people. For sure, for sure, without a doubt. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure if you go on Indeed or whatever, you'll find a a listing for uh, some stuff like this. Cool. Yeah, but you know, looking at the website, nothing that I'm seeing here from an iOS point of view is all that fancy and sophisticated, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe on the back end, uh, certainly for the the uh, you know the the travel and transportation stuff, there's a lot going on, but. On the iOS side, they're fairly straightforward apps, from what they're showing, at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Like, they don't look like enormously complex apps. Right. But, you know, they, they do look like they have some depth to them. Yeah. They're, they're... In terms of, like, they, they have a, a, a serious amount of functionality, yeah. but it's not terribly complex functionality. Right. And, again, we're seeing single static screens, yeah. so we yeah. don't really know what's going on there. Yeah. And and as you said, maybe nothing's going on. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. That actually, like, I I didn't even consider that notion, and now that you've said it, it's it's like, yeah, hundred percent true. <laughs> yep, yep. There was a very interesting talk at uh, WWDC last summer on how to make mockups. Yes, it's uh, true. Which was really interesting. It, it actually there was they were talking about how Apple actually does their own mockups, and it's all fake. I mean, they they clearly said this in the talk. You know, it's it's everything is fake. Um, they they you know they take screenshots of existing apps and kind of tweak them up in Photoshop and and uh, nothing is nothing is really running in these mockups that mm-hmm. they do. It's very interesting. I, I, if you haven't watched that video, I recommend going to watch it. It's it's pretty eye opening. All right. So uh, we had an interesting post uh, put up. I found I stumbled across the other day uh, from, from Rob Ryan about um, professional app pricing. What this comes from, uh, Rob Ryan is actually uh, writing in response to Alan Pike, who earlier, uh, actually November 30th is the date on this thing. It's some 11 days ago as we record this podcast, talking about the notion of writing a podcast creation right. app. Um, there are many podcast listening apps, uh, and there are no single solutions that allow you to write an app that would allow you to create a podcast. And actually I had an idea for one myself actually for the iPad. Um, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the reason being that as Alan Pike found out, there just doesn't seem to be a significant, a sufficiently large enough market to, uh, to uh, justify the expense of developing that app, which would be very difficult in its own right. You can imagine creating an, uh, an iPod, uh, Sorry, an, a podcast app would require a lot of different pieces of functionality to come together in a very cohesive way, and doing that would be an enormous programming task. At the end of that road, you would be selling your product to just too small of a market when you get right down to it. How many professional podcasters are out there? How much would they pay? And how many would switch over to it based on the tool sets that they're already using? And Alan Pike basically finished off by saying, you know what? There's just not going to be enough money in this. We have a great idea for how to do it, but it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Rob Ryan, he's the founder of Martian Craft, which is a very successful development agency. And uh, he also the makers of... Like Fortune Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 companies they build apps for, right? Yeah, they build apps for big companies. And they also build their own apps which includes uh, Briefs, Mm -hmm. which is an app that allows you to create mock-ups, live mock-ups for uh, iOS devices on a Mac. And they've got a number of other apps. They've bought apps over the years from other developers, Mm -hmm. um, including Changes. I remember that one, which was a a diff tool, basically, for the Mac. And Rob Ryan's column, you know, because he comes from such a – a very successful background. You tend to listen to people who, who have done well for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Rob kind of, you know, kind of scratched his head for a bit at Alan Pike's blog post saying, you know what? 
I think there are ways that you can make money doing something like this. If you're talking about a professional app that people use to make money, you, you can find a way to make enough money off of them to make a good living. And his column outlines all the ways that he could think of to, to make enough money. Mm-hmm. And if, if, even if you don't care about podcasting apps uh, or making one yourself – this is a great clinic, I think, on how to make money building an app for professionals. So go read it. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys have a look at this app? Uh, Colin? I, I looked at it um, when I first posted it last week. Yeah. But, uh, I, was using, I was using the, uh, the Jaime model of find an interesting post and put it on the, on the podcast notes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, let, let me give you some highlights. The idea being that you can charge a lot of money for an app that's a professional app. And while Alan Pike suggests, you know, $200 as a price point, mm. he's like, you know, go for $600, go for $1,000. And, you know, you're like, nobody's going to pay for that. And you're like, yeah, actually, if, if a, a podcaster is a professional and depends on this, then it's it's kind of worth any price. Because if you're making a living doing something, then you should be able to spend money on it. Sure. Really? Yep. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But if you don't feel like going that way, you can also charge a subscription fee for it. Why not? Um, and and the example being that Creative Cloud from Adobe does that. Uh, Microsoft does it nowadays with uh, Office 365. Yeah, AutoCAD. Yep. Yep, AutoCAD. Yep. And then I think this is cr- kind of crazy, but <laughs> his suggestion is uh, uh, charge a percent of the gross revenues that the podcaster makes using the app. Sure. I don't know how you're going to police that. But <laughs> there'd be some way. Um, but that's a way to sort of tie your app to the success of your customers, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Um, and I think this column is just great because it, it puts a lot of ideas in your head about, you know, what we think of all too little. And that is the business side of, of your, your app business. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed this column and I think it should be required reading for any iOS developer. I can tell you, like, I, I've got a couple of apps that, that uh, require some server hosting, and, and that's something that, you know, maybe people don't think about when they're running apps and, and having login and stuff like that. And, and the costs do go up. I mean, the number more hits you get, the more, you know, more users you get, more bandwidth out you get, um, the more money you have to basically provide for, for the app. I mean, I just, I just hit a ceiling on one of my apps where it's costing me more to host it than I'm being paid for. So I have to have, go and have a conversation with the client now. But... Or find another another uh, way to, to host it, but these are these are all things that, that you know push you away from the smaller priced apps. And I think uh, you know you're always beating me up about when I start talking about what's expensive and what's cheap on on um, when it comes to iPad and iPhone apps. Um, and realistically, though, you know if you have an app that that's not necessarily directed at your consumer, like your your base consumer. Um, maybe it's a professional app you're building. It, it, maybe it's worth charging twenty or thirty or forty dollars for it because you don't you're not really you're not really catering to the guys who want it for free or want to pay you know freemium type stuff or, or that kind of stuff. So you, you're going to charge a little bit more. And we've talked about that before because building apps, you know, again requires effort, requires money, requires income, and supporting them over time does as well, and upgrading them. And, and so it makes sense to, to if you're building an app that, that's going to be used at a professional level, then, then definitely uh, up the price, right? It's, it's a good piece, but it, you know, it still leaves unanswered the question of whether there, even with those strategies, could you make enough money to justify the development cost? Um, and yeah. I think that's the question for Alan Pike, <laughs> yeah. not for us. Yeah. But uh, food for thought. Well, delicious, well cooked. Well, I mean, and this is the thing is lately I've had to quote on a number of, of apps, you know, in the last, last three or four months, I've been quoting on some apps for people and, you know, they want to have all these different things. And we talked about, I think episode two or three of our, our show, we talked about how much it costs to make an app. And, you know, when you tell a client who has this wonderful, you know, earth shattering idea, what it really costs to make an app or what it really costs to support it over time they kind of go, well, maybe it wasn't that great an idea in the first place. And then, you know, they go off and do something else. But because as we all know from having built apps that, that it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not as simple as just, you know, adding a button to a a view controller and away you go. Right. And nobody has any money. 
<laughs> that much we've learned. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting. It's been an interesting year. Just about everybody I've spoken to this year has had a tough year. Every every market that I've talked to. So maybe it's maybe it's a thing. I think I, I don't know. I'm I'm finding that out here on the West Coast things are pretty hot. Well, we're all going to come and live in your basement, Mark. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be the only way we could afford to live over there. <laughs> Go ahead, Ivy. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm. Definitely a big fan of the sort of the, the latter article with, with Rob Ryan of trying to target the professionals and, and, and there's some kind of a caveat there and the prosumers, mm-hmm. which is probably a really untapped market for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So if we if we just immediately discount the idea of doing something like Odeo, which was um, the predecessor to, to Twitter, right, company wise, where they wanted to have a a way for just individual people to, you know, create, record, share, um, listen to podcasts, basically like turning, you know, blogging, you know, into the next thing was to turn audio blogging podcasts Mm. in that Mm -hmm. case, Mm -hmm. next thing. And that's probably not going to work too well unless you're, you know, massively VC funded. Um, and, and certainly on the other end, I don't think you're going to be able to make an app that you could convince NPR to switch to because they've already got their whole setup and even the the sort of lower level um professionals like Leo Lapore from Twit or Dan Benjamin from Five by Five, they've already got their their setups and, and this isn't really all that helpful for them. But there's a really, really big jump, you know, between that level and folks doing podcasts that are they're trying to do it more professionally, even if it's not as as a living it's you know just sort of something they they want to get out there and get creative and Mm -hmm. and produce a good product and do it more quickly more easily i think something like 500 to a thousand dollars wouldn't be you know unfeasible i mean just of course it depends on what exactly it it takes to create that software i mean it'll take a lot of careful really hard product management type decisions and and real careful analysis of, of what the market can actually support but if you sold you know, a hundred licenses at a thousand dollars a piece. I mean, you're, you're not looking too bad for that year at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it comes back to the ice cream versus big box thing that I was talking about earlier. You know, it's like the difference between an iMovie or a garage band and final cut pro or logic, you know, uh, yes, you can do the, t- accomplish the task with the, with the smaller tool that you now pay $5 for or comes free with your Mac. Um, but if you really want to get into professional level stuff, then you need to look at something that's a bit more expensive and has, has more, more, uh, you know, capabilities, more functions, more features than, than, uh, your smaller app. And I'm sure Apple sells a ton of iMovies, but they don't sell that many Final, Final Cut Pros, you know, and that kind of thing. So isn't iMovie free now? <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, it doesn't, I, what was $5 for one, one point, but now, yeah, now it comes free with yeah. your Mac. I think GarageBand comes yep. free with the Mac too as well. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're both free actually. Now you say that, but I mean, uh, you know, um, we use Final Cut Pro to, to edit the podcast. We could use Skype recorders and all kinds of other stuff and, and have a, a poorer quality product. And, and I talked about this last week with, uh, with Tammy on the, on episode 18 about, um, Marco Armit's uh, point about recording podcasts you want to basically put your best foot forward you know come at it with uh, with uh, the, uh, the best product you can you know whether it's editing or, or what tools you use you know get proper mics and all that kind of stuff you know and manage the sound so so i i think that the concept of of building apps for professionals is is a fantastic one yeah uh you know the the most success i've had doing my own apps has been for niche markets where it's where it's people who had a specific need yep. Uh, for something and are willing to pay whatever it takes to do that. Now, I haven't addressed professional markets, but you know, but I but I think it absolutely carries over. Uh, podcasts. I don't know if that's the best example because I'm not sure that that many people are making a lot of money doing podcasts. No. Although I'm sure some are. Uh, but you know, if you target medical people, um, that's an that's an enormous opportunity. Now, you know, if you could target lawyers, I mean, if you, if the, the whole the whole key I think is targeting people who have money to spend on apps. Uh, if you want to get them to spend more, you know, um, so if you can identify a, a professional segment of people who, who are you know, well compensated and they and therefore have income to spend on their, on their business or just disposable income, mm-hmm. then that's a, that's a perfect opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. That brings mm-hmm. it around to what I was saying, you know, again, sorry, to, to talk about having, to finding, you know, market-driven app development, which is, yeah. which is the talk that, you know, uh, Charles Perry gave again. And that's basically find a niche that has a problem that you can solve by building an app and, and yep. do it. Yep. You know, and, yep. and hopefully do it with the with uh, with a company. One of one of uh, one of my coaches, um, actually the guy who started Strategic Coach, always says his best customer is a slow learner with cash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. Anyway, I mean, you, you look at the gold rush, right? The the folks going and digging for the gold had varying levels of success and failure, but the, the folks selling the supplies and the shovels. Yeah, made absolutely. out like bandits, right? I mean, they, they did really well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Didn't Sears get started that way? I think so. Or Le- Levi's for sure did. Well, Hudson's Bay Levi's. Company started that way. Yeah. The Hudson Bay Company here in Canada, which is like the biggest retailer, started up hunting beaver felt in or beaver fur in in uh, <laughs> what beaver be- beaver fur beaver. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> up in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> it's not beaver fur, beaver fur. Uh, oh, I, I like the other one. Yeah. No, no, we gave you, we gave Beaver to the Americans. He's your problem now. Fantastic. You can have the back, please. Nope, it's all yours. Sure, we'll come pick him. Something to, to add to the show notes is the fact that um, Dan Benjamin of Five by Five has created not only a, a website called Podcast Method, where mm-hmm. he sort of describes the varying levels of equipment that he would recommend for if you're a beginner, sure. if you're intermediate, advanced, we're going into professional. And he's even started, you know, a, a podcast series specifically about uh, talking about his setup, what he recommends and answering questions that people have about that. So there's, there's definitely an interest. Is it, is it big enough to have, you know, a hundred different apps competing for that? Probably not, but I, I suspect that somebody could be successful doing that. Sure. sure. Well, actually, mm-hmm. you, thanks for posting this, by the way, because I just found the headphones I'm going to put on my Christmas list from this post. So, <laughs> and this is inside baseball. <laughs> I don't know what that is, Aaron. I don't watch baseball. Let's talk about podcasting on a podcast with the podcasts. Let's do some picks. You want to do picks? Sure. Okay. So let's wrap it up. Let's pick. go around the table like we always do, and let's see if any. Let's see if Aaron has a pick. Aaron, do you have a pick? I've got two, uh, but they're going to be talked about as one. All right. Uh, so I, I was kind of thinking about golf games on the iPhone, and there's there's two of them that have come out very close to each other in terms of time that are both golf-related. One of them is called Desert Golfing, and the other is called Golfinity. And I heard about Golfinity several months ago when Nimblebit, the publishers of it, put out a trailer uh, demonstrating the app and saying it was going to be coming soon, and I got really excited because it looked super awesome. Uh, Golfinity from Nimblebit is like mini putt. It has little mini putt style courses, and it's kind of presented in an isometric style view, mm-hmm. uh, not unlike Crossy Road, actually. When you think about it. Oh, this is, this is um, which this is Golfinity. Golfinity, okay. yeah. Okay. And um, the mechanic is very simple. You uh, draw on your screen, pull back. And the, you can set the direction and the strength of your hit. And then you can bounce the ball around the mini putt course and sink it. You know, and that's basically the idea. Hmm. Looks really cool. And around the same time, this other go- uh, game comes out. Very cheesy looking. And it's called Desert Golfing. It's got a really crappy looking logo icon. And unlike uh, Golfinity, which is very polished and isometric looking, um, Desert Golfing is like a 2D side scroller. And it's incredibly simple and basic looking. Um, it looks like the courses that you go through are, are rendered procedurally um, in the code. I'm not 100% sure about that, um, but they, they look you know, like just random lines across, and you got a same mechanic as in Golfinity. You draw back on the screen uh, direction and strength and, and let loose with the ball and try to get it in the hole. And both of them are basically play forever. You just sink holes in the in the, in the uh Sorry, sink balls in the holes, and then move on to the next one, and it goes on. So, the the, the thing that surprised me though is that while desert golfing doesn't look that interesting compared to golfinity, it's actually a much more interesting and, and amusing game. And so, if you are in the mood for a golf game for your phone, um, and you have these two to choose between, have a look at desert golfing instead. Um, hi, me. Do you have a pick? I do, and it's kind of a strange pick here. So um, it's called MM Wormhole. It's from the Mutual Mobile folks. 
And the reason I, I give it a weird caveat is I've not had time to digest Apple's latest watch kit drop where they allow you to um, call the parent application from the watch kit app mm-hmm. and respond to that. Uh, so I'll have to see how, how necessary this ends up being, but it's still pretty cool. So the idea is um, you create this, what they're calling a wormhole and cue the deep space nine music right here. So you, you can easily send information back and forth from the containing app or sorry, from the parent app and the watch kit app. So when I look at the code examples, it's, it's really kind of reminds me of like a reactive cocoa kind of thing where you're using sort of signals to drive things. So they give a real example of you know, passing a message, uh, like what button number has somebody pressed on one of the devices. And then on the other side, just simply listening on the wormhole for that. And apparently it uses the uh, Darwin notifications to do that. And, and the fact that app groups are allowed to share context, you know, contextual information. So it's kind of neat. I think it, it kind of needs to be evaluated re- with regards to what Apple just recently updated the WatchKit SDK with. Mm-hmm. But it looks like it's, at the very least, a nice wrapper to easily share data in a JSON format back and forth between your apps and, and just really kind of abstract away a lot of the messiness of trying to do the, the dance between the two different uh, apps and just let you get your business on. Hmm. So does it work through a remote server or is it uh, like a peer-to-peer network or... I'd have to look and, and see how the exactly the Darwin notifications work, but it's, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the communication with the app, the app and the watch kit piece is going to be through Bluetooth. Right. And right. so right. It, it sends, uh, it looks like it sends CF notification center, Darwin mm-hmm. notifications. So, it, you know, you do like self dot wormhole, listen for message with identifier, some, you know, some identifier. And then right, there's a, right. a callback that says, oh, okay, once I've gotten that information, now what do I want to do with it? Do I want to update the screen? Do I want to, you know, ring the phone? All sorts of things. It's not like sending information to some server somewhere. That would still be the responsibility of uh, the parent app if there was some need to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can imagine something that says, okay, uh, I press a button on the watch, which communicates information, some sort of command to the parent app. The parent app says, oh, I better go talk to a server, get the server information, and then pass that back off to the watch. Right, right. So it's really trying to, it doesn't give you anything that you couldn't already do. It's trying to make it easier to do that without having to do a lot of the setup. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling that this has been obviated by what Apple introduced in the 8.2 beta today. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I was looking at, um, there's like a pair of new method calls that allow you to specifically call the parent app from the WatchKit app and right. send a block. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, David Smith a blog has a description of that with the open parent application, and then on the parent application, it responds to you know handle WatchKit extension request. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And it's using NS Dictionary on both sides, so I think it's it's very very similar to what Mutual Mobile did here. Yeah. It's it's so great to see this kind of iteration on on the APIs though, eh? When you know they've in the beta phase, they are iterating very quickly and adding functionality to like that. Apple, you mean, right? Mm-hmm. Apple, yes. <laughs> that was your segue, Jaime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it's great. It's great to see it because it, when the first drop came out of WatchKit, remember everybody was like, "Oh my gosh, I I can't do anything." Blah blah blah. I was like, "Well, hold on, hold on." Apple said it was coming in the future and. They were not lying. They have given us a huge amount of functionality just, what are this, several weeks later. Mm-hmm. And it's better that they do this iteration now rather than realizing when they release the watch, oops, can't develop any apps at all. Sorry. Okay, well, here's another 1.1 version of uh, WatchKit. I'd rather see it as early as possible. Exactly. So, Mark, do you have a pick for us? I do have a pick this week. It's called Clockwork Brain, mm-hmm. and it's a... A game, or or really a set of games uh, that are all sort of the brain teaser or mind games kind of kind of thing, all built into one app. Uh, so there's there's a whole bunch of different games you can play. There's some some are you know spelling related, some are visual recognition related, some are math oriented, and the app is kind of a, a wrapper around all these different games. There's a challenge mode where 
you have to play a whole bunch of different games before the clock runs out and you get kind of a total score based on that. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I haven't even unlocked yet, so it looks like it's pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Um, very well done, very slick. Graphics are really nice, uh, very performant. Um, the only downside I can see is it's a little bit pushy on the uh, in-app purchase, right. but you know, but that's okay. So are you are you using uh, the so, free version or the get? I mean, the get version or or the premium? I'm using the get version. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Is it the new Apple terminology. Yes. Yeah, so I haven't posted a payment. That's a nerd joke for all you guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I recommend it. it's pretty fun. Cool. And, and you're just so you're just using the first version now. So is the is the the, the free or the get version? Is it? Um, is it the same as the premium version? Like, I guess the premium version, you can just buy the whole thing all at once. Is that? I, I think so. I, I haven't really looked into that, but I think so. There's, like I said, there's a lot of stuff that is to be unlocked, and some of it you, it, it, it looks like you can unlock some of it by playing the game a lot and you know earning points. I guess yeah. you can unlock some things, uh, but it does give you the option to just buy those outright. It looks like so. Probably premium just gives you access to everything right away. Can, can I ask fine. how you found the app? How did you find it? Yeah, I found it in two ways, actually. Uh, one, I saw it on just on the App Store, actually. Interestingly enough, I saw it on the front page of the App Store okay. uh, while hunting for a pick a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, and I played it. And then uh, it turns out that the CEO of the company I've been consulting with uh, showed it to me and really liked it. Okay. And so I thought, oh, you know, that's two data points. That's That's pretty good. I came across a couple of videos online, which were really kind of fascinating, and um uh, I went and saw the Mistbusters uh, behind the Mist tour a couple of weeks ago um, when Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage came to Toronto and did it, put on their their live show, which was pretty entertaining. And if you got kids, they'd they'd love to go to it. I'm sure if, you, if it's a, coming by your town. Um, but they posted a couple of ads, and I think they were done as uh, sorry videos, and they were done as um, I think promotion pieces for Corning, and. The, there's two parts to it, and I'll post them in the show notes. But the second part, you should watch it from the very beginning because it's all about how uh, is this the glass yeah, age? They made the they made the bendable glass and they made the fiber optic yeah, cable yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. But the second piece, which is kind of important, which is kind of interesting from, and I guess it's it's kind of follow up to what we were talking about before with with the saf uh, the sapphire screens. But they go into Gorilla Glass and how it works. And in typical Mythbusters type style. They show how they test the bending glass, and and uh, you know of course Jamie gets to fire stuff at, at pieces of glass, and it's and they get the high high speed camera going there. So it's kind of it's really cool little little video. Um, as I said, I, I think it's done as a promotion piece for Corning, but but it's still definitely worth checking out. It's really kind of interesting. Did you guys check it out, or I know Aaron, you just said you did, right? Yeah, I did. It was it was cute, very yeah, cute. Yeah. And I actually didn't even I don't know MythBusters. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard of it, yeah. but I've never watched yeah. it, so I didn't recognize these guys. But they were pretty entertaining. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, they definitely are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put on quite a show live, and they 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 have a lot of fun. They blow stuff up real good uh, at uh, at uh, home. And actually, it, it, just from their from their um, their Twitter handles, Adam's Twitter is "Don't try this," which is this, one of the slogans they have on the show is "Don't try this at home," right? And and one of the most successful bits they did on the show was they heated up a water heater till it exploded. Right, and there's only one weld across the bottom of a, of a water heater, so he says. He says, "What you do?" And he pre-brought a water heater out to the edge of the stage, and he says, "So what you do here is you, you get yourself a typical water heater, and you go and read all the instructions about all the safety features of the water heater, and then you countermand every single one of them, right?" And and he said, and he says, "I cannot emphasize this enough. Do not try this at home." And then they showed the video of, of this thing blowing up. And, and I think that he was saying that uh, in, in the States, they have to register a flight plan if an object's going to go up into the sky higher than 500 feet or something like that. And basically after this thing blew up, because they, they, they overheat the water till it, till it basically explodes and fires off the bottom like a rocket, um, he said that they probably should have filed a flight plan. <laughs> <laughs> but officially on paper, it only went 100 feet, right? Um, okay, so that's it for the show for this week. And so once again, Aaron, if people were trying to find you on Twitter, how would they do that? Well, on Twitter, they could find me at Aaron Vay. But you know what? I'm going to shock and amaze you because I have a new website up oh. in order to try. I'm trying to solicit some work. Yeah. So uh, it's my company site, uh, Innovative.com. And uh, that's I-N-N-O-V-E-G-H-T-I-V-E.com. There you go. And Jaime, where can people find you? At Dev of the Hair and Dev of the Hair.com. And Mark, where can people find you? 
Mark R at Smapsoft.com. And once again, my name is Timitra. I am at T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter. And, of course, you can reach me at my website, uh, it-guy.com or IT Guy Technologies in your Google. Um, and uh, you can also follow us uh, on Twitter with our uh, Twitter handle, which I'll talk about after in the outro. And you can always find us on, leave a comment or uh, find show notes at our website for the show, which is uh, at mtjc.fm. So once again, say goodbye. We'll have one more show for, for the Christmas break. And so I guess next week we'll do a Christmas theme. What do you think, guys? Ho. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> but Aaron won't be singing, that's, that's for sure. Well, not if this voice keeps up. <laughs> All right, we'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye now. Bye. All right. Okay. Killing it. My, my voice. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about and links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us and retweet our tweets on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount at patreon.com. You can provide as little as a dollar per month. However, you're free to do as you please. Thanks again for listening. Phone rings in San Jose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, since we're going to cut this part out anyways, I I do actually live in fear because I keep my iPhone and my iPad right next to me. I always put mine on Do Not Disturb. Thanks for reminding me. Well, yeah, but I, I haven't actually seen what happens if they're on silent and then with handoff if i get a phone call oh go see your what's mac. it gonna do you know i've, I've, I've used the whole mac integration capability to, to do telephone but i don't yeah. i don't know what happens here well I, I can tell you i use do not disturb do not disturb all the time and it's my phones are constantly disturbing me <laughs> you know so it's so this do not disturb it's got this pretty little crescent moon icon but that's about all that's about I think that's what it does. It adds a crescent moon to the to the menu bar, and <laughs> <laughs> it's a placebo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes you feel good. <laughs> and of course, it vibrates on your desk. As you know, we have different we have different dialects across the country, and one of them is Newfoundland. And um, if you think Canadian is funny, uh, I'll post a, a link to a guy named Alan Haku, who's who was on uh, my friend George Dromolopoulos's show on TV on CBC a couple of years ago, and he was trying to teach George how to speak Newfoundland. Newfoundlander, Newfoundlandish, I don't know, Newf. So, uh, I mean, I, I listened to part of the accidental podcast. What's that about Crossy Road? Is that just sort of a follow-up idea or what? Just oh, a quick follow-up on, on Crossy Road because it was kind of interesting. Um, and, and to Casey Liss's credit, he, he notes the fact that there was some some irony here and that they were talking about Crossy Road and how it's not really um, – you know, it's not aggressive enough to make money and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then not 10 minutes prior, they were talking about how upset they were that Apple's push notification for the, the red program had come out, which was mm-hmm. a, definitely a controversial one, right? Like in terms of being on, spammy, I mean, spammy for a, a good uh, a good cause, perhaps. This but. is ATP. It wasn't 10 minutes. It was like an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>